Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for the opportunity again to gather with your people, to study your word, to think about the issues of our lives, to think about how we um, can implement your word in our lives and in our families, particularly now as we consider our children. Lord, help us. You know how difficult this task is. You know how challenging it is day in and day out. You know our frailties. You know that not only our children need to grow, but we need to grow. So teach us today and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're on our 15th lesson on child rearing, and I think we've got three or four more to go. I'm going to do a couple on teens, and today we'll get started on that. I'm going to kind of transition into that a little bit here at the beginning, and then hopefully uh, next week or so we'll continue with uh, the rest of the section on teens. Uh, We could obviously devote a long, long time to that subject, but we're going to do a flyover. And uh, let me begin with this. I came across this from a fellow uh, pastor, Al Stout, who's in Pensacola, Florida. And he said that he took this basic idea from somewhere, and he couldn't recall where. So he said, I apologize to David or Paul Tripp or Dr. Dobson, or whoever it was I'm ripping off. Uh, so we all, what happens is we, especially as pastors, we read a lot on, on this subject, and uh, over the years it accumulates and it gets homogenized in our heads. And then sometimes I'm looking on my shelves trying to remember, now where did I read that? And so we end up with these kind of blanket uh, attributions. Uh, so he, uh, he's talking about time. So again, this is going to apply for young kids, older kids, and grown-ups for that matter. Time is a creation of God, and you should teach your children to rule time. When you're five years old, everything is immediate, and the future is never. You must train them out of that way of thinking before the teen years, and grasping the immediate has long-term consequences. Here's a, a case study. After swimming for two hours, it comes time for lunch. You look at your watch and say, Johnny, get out of the pool, it's time for lunch. This is a shock to Johnny's sensibilities. Uh, What do you mean, get out? Uh, I will never get back in here, and right now I'm full of joy. Uh, Who wants to give up joy for a currently ethereal PB&J? He responds with a resounding No. The other poolside parent snicker as he swims to the middle of the pool. Here is what I suggest. Be your own ecclesiastical teacher. Teach him about the times. Before you go to the pool, talk about it. Johnny, there's a time for swimming and a time for eating. A time to slide and a time for juice boxes. We're going to do both, and here's how it works. I'm going to let you swim for a long time, and then I'll let you know when you have 15 minutes left in pool time. Go down the slide one more time, jump off the edge, and do a couple more flips. Then, when I say that the 15 minutes are up, then it's time to get out for lunch, and you respond right away. Okay? Then follow through with this plan. Now, here's my addendum. 
You can also apply this to church and to other occasions. We're going to church today, and you're going to get to spend some good time with your friends. But there will also be time for us to worship God and serve his people. Here's what we're all going to do. We're going to sit still, be quiet, pay attention, sing, lift our hands, pray, and worship God from our hearts. We're going to make a fresh commitment to follow Jesus this week. We're going to go to the bathroom before the service starts so we don't have to get up during the service and distract other people. We're going to listen to the sermon so we can talk about it later. And after church, we're going to find someone to talk with for a few minutes other than your regular friends. Then we're going to help set up for lunch. And then you can go spend some more time with your good friends. And then when it's time to clean up, we're going to help. Okay? Then follow through with the plan. There's a, a whole bunch of circumstances. You know, you're, on your, you're going to someone's house, and what do you do? You should be talking by the, in the way, you know, um, applying Scripture. How do we, we're going to some friends and have fellowship. How should we act? You know, what manners should you have? What are you going to do if they put something in front of you you don't like? What are you going to say? What are you not going to say? You coach them. That's your job. You shepherd them so they know what to think and how to act. And you're reminding them so that later, if they don't do that, they can't say, what, I forgot. So you're making sure they don't forget. So we're taking away excuses. And we're shaping and training. That's part of discipline. In fact, most of discipline ought to be formative discipline, not corrective discipline. We're, we're giving examples, we're, we're giving instruction and that kind of thing. So here, as we start to talk about teens from having talked about little children, uh, the parenting objectives for teen, the teen years is not really different from what it was with younger children. Now, the situations are going to be different. The applications are going to get bigger and, and more challenging, but hopefully your children have been maturing if you've been doing this job with, when they're little so that you too have also been maturing. You've been learning. You've been growing. You have uh, hopefully taught them to love God. You have taught them the lessons of showing respect. You have loved them and shown them respect. And then the teen years, if, that, if you've done that, the teen years are going to go a whole lot better but they, will not, they won't be without new challenges. And so understanding what is going on with teenagers is critical to being able to help them navigate through this challenging period of life. Um, I suspect there are not many, if any, adults who would voluntarily go back to being a teenager. There are good reasons for that. Some, uh, so some measure of pity and sympathy are in order for teenagers. Now, I'm going to take, before we dive into some of the, this background of understanding teenagers, uh, I, I have some hard things to say, and I don't want to say them, but I would be less than honest and less than loving if I didn't. 
And so I want to revisit a topic that I already covered when we were talking about little children, and that is the issue of indulgence. Indulgence comes in many forms. There's the obvious kind of indulgence where you you give people things, you buy them things, you, you, you spend money on them and you buy them whatever they want and you get them ice cream and you buy them whatever the latest clothes are and you always are giving them things. That's one way to indulge children. But there are other ways. Uh, there's another kind of indulgence that starts out by parents giving in to whining and manipulation. And so your child learns that if they whine enough, if they can you know, keep pushing you and asking you and begging you and, and, and throwing a fit or whatever, and eventually you'll give in and give them what they want. You will indulge them. And that is the more common version of indulgence. And we don't see it as that. We think we're solving an immediate problem. We're getting them off our case. We're getting them to be quiet. We're getting them to, to leave you alone. But there are going to be, there's going to be a payday for this later that is uh, quite expensive. So remember, you always get more of what you pay for. If whining and manipulation work, that is, if they pay off for your children, then expect a lot more whining and manipulation. Now, the, it'll change forms as they get older. It'll become more sophisticated. Um, but one example that I often see is that some parents automatically believe the complaints of their children against other children, teachers, or others in authority. So if their child said, somebody did this to me, or did that to me, or they were mean to me, or whatever, there is an automatic assumption that their child is telling it like it is. Their child couldn't possibly be mistaken. They couldn't possibly be misinterpreting the facts. They couldn't possibly be spinning this story in their favor. And they certainly couldn't possibly be dishonest. So um, it's not that their complaints might not be true. It's that they might not be true. The key here is might. And parents should assume, shouldn't assume, that their little darling is always accurate and always honest. They just shouldn't make that assumption. They might be. Perhaps they are most of the time. Perhaps they're sincere in their complaint, but that still doesn't make it true. An accusation does not make something true, even if it comes from an honest person. And so when someone says, Don't you believe me? The answer should be, not necessarily. Maybe. Let me investigate. Let me ask some questions. Proverbs 18, 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. There's two sides to a story. Many, many times after we've heard all the facts, a better explanation emerges. And so you might discover that a few significant details were left out of your child's report. A young child who has been indulged 
becomes an unmanageable teenager. They have learned that if they manipulate you, that they will prevail, they will get what they want, and you will stop being the parent, and they will call the shots, and they will make the decisions, and they will be in charge, and soon you will be doing backflips to keep them happy. They have come to think that it is your job to make them happy, and if you stop making them happy, they will not only be unhappy with you, they will despise you. And here's why. Your indulgence has become an entitlement. You owe me. It is your job to make me happy, and you've stopped making me happy, so you're not doing your job, and that makes me angry. And so now that leads to the next problem. And so how many times have I heard parents say regarding a teenager, we're going to let them do, and you can fill in the blank, because, you know, we're not for it and we think it's a bad idea, but we don't want to lose them. You've already lost them. You should remember that you are the grown-up. God put you in charge. They will need you, as my mother used to say. They will need you before you need them. Loving them is doing for them what they need, not necessarily what they want. You've heard that from me over and over. That's true when they're little, and that's true when they're teenagers. They think, they can see the situation as clearly as you do. They don't. When they're 15, they understand that. That's, they've got 15 years of experience. That's what they bring to the table. It's all they have, and they think it's sufficient. You've got two or three times that much experience, depending on how old you are. And believe me, when they're 25, they'll look back at 15 and shake their head, right? just like you did when you turned 25 or 35, you look back and, you know, and the way to test that is when you were, how many 25-year-olds go and get advice from 15-year-olds? How many 15-year-olds get advice from 15-year-olds? And lo and behold, they, they agree with me. They think the way I do. They think you're, my parents are being unreasonable and they can't believe I have to put up with parents like that. You've loved them, you gave them birth, you've fed them, you've clothed them, you've nursed them, you'd lay down your life for them, but often they would rather listen to their 15-year-old friend than you. Stick it, stay in there. You're still the grown-up. You still have a job to do. Don't shift the blame. Your children do what they do because, what? You let them. Now, that was my aside. Thank you for indulging me. Um, now, let me turn to, uh, and, uh, to teenagers who are here, and let me give you some direct admonition. The Bible is written for you, just like it's written for the rest of us. God, God had teenagers in mind when he wrote the Bible, and, and so the things he has to say there apply to you. They're going to apply a little bit differently to little children and then to teenagers and then to young adults and older adults and then old people. 
But that's the way the Word of God is. It's living and active, and it, does, it can do all of that at the same time. And so it's important for you to remember who you are. You're a Christian teenager. You're not just a teenager. You're a follower of Jesus. And you're a teenage follower of Jesus, and you're in between being a kid and being a grown-up, and this is, this is that, this is that uh, time in which God, God himself has put you there for a reason. You're not little children, and you're not adults yet. That's just the way it is. We all go through transitions. Number two, you need to remember where you are. God put you under your parents' authority. He thought you needed parents. They're not perfect. He knows that. You know that. But they love you, and he put them in charge of you. You're going to spend the rest of your life under somebody's authority. There are all kinds of authorities God has in the world, and we're all under them, and God's teaching you how to live under authority. Ultimately, all authority is his. And that's the main authority you have to learn to live under. And one of the ways you do that is you ask the question, all right, God, where did you put me? Okay, you put me here. And you gave me parents. And you told me to honor and obey my parents. So if you're going to please God as a teenager, you've got to understand where he put you. And he put you there because he's getting you ready to be adults. That's what he wants. He wants you to be all grown up. He wants you to be wise. He wants you to be mature. He wants you to probably go forth and raise some more teenagers down the the way. Third, you need to know where you're going. That's what Christian maturity is about. And so, teenagers, you're going to be some kind of an adult, some kind of a spouse, some kind of a parent, some kind of an aunt or an uncle or a friend, And what you do today, what you do now as a teenager, is going to have a dramatic impact, a profound effect on what kind of adult you will be. Proverbs 1, 7 through 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in the Bible we have, especially in the book of Proverbs, these two kinds of people. There's the wise people and the fools. You're in one category or the other. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains or necklaces around your neck. So, to parents of teens, it is probably better... uh, Let me just... Just a, a comment I ran across, I stuck in here. It's kind of a random comment, and I liked it. It's probably better for your teenagers that they learn to deny themselves than to express themselves. So, remember, our basic problem is selfishness. And love is about selflessness. We want them to grow up in love. Love God and love their neighbors. That's the fundamental job. In Paul David Tripp's book, The Age of Opportunity, he says this, the teen years are often cataclysmic years of conflict, struggle, and grief. They are years of new temptations, of trial and testing. Yet these very struggles, conflicts, trials, and tests are what produce such wonderful parental opportunities. Tripp identifies three areas of challenge and opportunity that are common to teenagers. 
And we're going to go over each of these three briefly here today. And it's critical for parents of teens to recognize this because they provide the context for understanding why certain behaviors are taking place. Why why do teens act different than young children? Your job is not to crush them, abandon them, or humiliate them. You are called to love, respect, lead, and discipline them for their good and for the glory of God and ultimately for the good of the world. First, so here are the three things. First, teenagers are insecure people. Now, before we get too far ahead, let me just say, frankly, we're all insecure people in some areas, but teens are especially insecure. Um, And so let's ask the question, what do we do with our insecurities? Hide them. That's right. You, You try to hide yours, I try to hide mine, and they try to hide theirs. Insecurity? What insecurity? Lack of confidence? What lack of confidence? Who, me? I'm not worried about how I look. I'm not worried about what other people think about me. I'm not worried about those things. I got it all together. Don't believe it. Okay? Everything is changing in their lives. That's why you don't want to go back. Physical appearance, their bodies are changing. Relationships, ideas, they're thinking bigger thoughts, they're being exposed to new ideas. Responsibilities are changing. The future can look pretty scary. Who wants to admit that? Now there's another, now this is, you know, the teen years, but then there's this other transition. I often see this come right around the time of high school graduation. We call it commencement for a reason. It's another new big transition, right? Now we're leaving high school. Perhaps we're going to get a job or go off to school. That's pretty scary too, stepping out into the adult world, stepping out of the nest. So we're not talking about that right now, but my point is life is full of these kinds of transitions, and they're scary. Getting married, having children, getting a new job, moving to a new location. There are all kinds of events in our lives that produce this, but for teenagers, all of this is going on simultaneously. They've never been there before. You have. You've been a teenager, so I'm asking you to think about that, to put yourself in their shoes so that you have the appropriate sympathy and understanding to know what you're dealing with. I have this kind of the picture that teenagers are a little bit like the Wizard of Oz, you know, where the the scene, if you saw the movie, where uh, the dog Toto pulls the curtain back, and there's the Wizard of Oz back there, and what does he say? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, Because there was so much smoke and mirrors and lights and all that that made him to seem to have everything under control. And then he was this kind of frail old man that was back there pulling the levers and trying to keep it all together. Well, that's, that's a little bit of what's going on with teenagers. I'm sorry, teenagers, I'm exposing you here. I pull the curtain back, but, uh, you know, we love you. Uh, so we want to help you get through this. Second, teens are often known for rebellious behavior, but what's behind this? in addition to the sinful heart, 
uh, are some new desires that are kicking in. You know, you think about a little kid. Uh, a little kid can go out in the backyard and play in the dirt for four hours and go do it again tomorrow. Or just have a, a whole world in the backyard. But now the backyard's not that much fun anymore, and the world's starting to expand. And we'll say more about that in a moment. But the desires began to come up as we become teenagers. Desire for freedom. Desire for new things, to try new things to test the boundaries, to make their own decisions. Uh, They've got this quandary, uh, this tension, this antithesis between wanting to be their own person, wanting to be an individual, but wanting to fit in. And so the the classic, I remember this especially in the 60s, but it's, it's true of every generation when, you know, everybody... Every, every generation of teens has their own haircuts and clothing and music. Because why? They want to be individuals. They just all look alike. Or want to, want to look alike while they're trying to be individuals. And so we can look at them as a class or as a, as a generation of people and we see this sameness usually in the name of trying to be free and do our own thing. So this tension's there. They want to be accepted. So do you see any area in this list where conflict might come up? Like every one of them? Third, and and these overlap, the world of the teenager is widening. It's a world full of new challenges. Opportunities, friends, information, freedoms, responsibilities, feelings, experiences, and temptations. When you add uh, to that their relative inexperience, this becomes some potentially treacherous territory. But it also becomes an opportunity to understand and internalize fundamental truths. If you've developed the ability to have conversations with your children, particularly, again, starting when they're young. And that's why I think things like regular family meetings, not just riding in the car, but being sure you engage in conversations when you're together, just learning to talk about all kinds of things. Imagine now as these new widening challenges present themselves that you could have conversations. I'll just give some samples here. Uh, about the sovereignty and providence of God, the ever-present help of God, the nature of biblical relationships, spiritual warfare, discipline, self-control, self-denial, contentment, faithfulness, trustworthiness, community and communion, the world, the flesh, the devil, the principles of responsibility and accountability, priorities, stewardship, and the list could go on and on and on. There are all kinds of opportunities. That doesn't mean you're giving lectures on all these things. It means you're asking some probing questions and you're having an adult conversation with your teenagers. What do you think about this? Or have you ever thought about that? Now, again, this involves cultivating relationships, not just always walking around giving a lecture, uh, but learning to use these opportunities and knowing that the seeds you're planting don't always in that moment bear fruit. You know, that question, are they listening? Yes, they are. They may, they may not remember they're insecure, so they often want to say what when you're telling them something? I know. I know. 
They've been saying that since they were like five, right? I know. And they, they do know some, but they're learning, they're growing. And then as they get older, uh, you know, hopefully what happens is they come back and say, man, you know, I know I didn't always act like I was listening, but I was. I was hearing some of that soaking in. Some of that's getting in there. And when the, when the challenge comes later, uh, that's when they're going to draw on those resources. The widening world provides widening opportunities. Now, um, I'm going to kind of stop there on, on directly on teens for this morning. And I, ha- I was in the middle of some other part of the study, and I, this lesson grew into two. It might grow into three. I don't know. But uh, I also I thought I'd pause. And for those of you who've been waiting for some lists, I have three that I want to close with today. The first two are lists that I wrote um, a couple of years ago. Some of you have seen them. Um, but I'll, I'm going to bring them out to remind you. And I probably, these both have to do with sons, and I probably ought to, first of all, most of these would apply to daughters as well. Uh, there may be a few that are particular to sons, so I'm not trying to slight daughters. It was at the time I was writing this, I was dealing with fathers and sons. And so, again, many of these will apply for either 10 things, your, I'll just say, uh, your children ought to hear you say. These are, uh, there's probably many things they ought to hear you say, but they ought to hear these ten um, from you. You're right, and I'm wrong. Parents, are you ever wrong? Then you ought to admit it. You ought to say to your children, when you are, you were right, and I was wrong. What are you doing when you say that? You're setting an example. You're being honest. You're being humble. You're teaching them. This is what you do when you're wrong. Will you forgive me? I need some help. I need some advice. I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting these backwards. These are things you ought to hear your son or your daughter say. They ought to say, but they ought to, you ought to say those too. So let me let me correct this. Ten things you ought to hear your son or daughter say. You're right and I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? I need some help. Thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. What does this mean? Wasn't that a good sermon? Can I go with you, Dad? Dad, Mom, I want to be like you. Now, 20 things your son or daughter ought to hear you say. Sorry about this. No. You can't have that right now. Did you ask if you could help? You know, people are doing things in the church or at somebody's house or around your house. Did you ask if you could help? You may not speak to your mother that way. You may not speak to your brother or sister that way. You need to redo that job until it's done right. You're going to finish that job. 
that's not good enough. If you said you would do it, then you're going to do it. No, you can't quit. Yes, you're going to go. You don't have to like it, but you have to eat it. Look him in the eye. Start over. No, you can't play a game. Have you sent your thank you notes yet? I love you. I'm proud of you. Well done. You're becoming a man or a woman. I'm sure you can handle it without me. Again, I'm sure you can add to both those lists. But those are examples of what ought to make up the fabric of the conversations in your home. Now, somebody sent me this following list. It's a little more detailed. I think it was a blog post by Amy Carney. And I, I think Nicole sent it to me, but maybe I sent it to her. I don't know which one. Uh, it's called Quit Doing These Eight Things for Your Teen This Year If You Want to Raise an Adult. Anybody seen that? Okay, I enjoyed this. Let me just make a comment about it, though. You know, anytime somebody writes this or my list, there may be one or two things you quibble with or disagree with. The idea here is to get us thinking and to fundamentally challenge sometimes things we've forgotten or we hadn't thought about before. So there may be a thing or two. You go, well, that's not exactly what I would do. That's okay. This is not, a, this is not the Ten Commandments, Okay. But this, this, these are some things that when I read it, I thought, that's really, I appreciate the frankness of it and the directness of it and the way of kind of thinking in a new way. So the preface says, don't judge me if you happen to see my kids eating packaged Ritz crackers for school lunch. Don't judge me if they're on the sidelines of PE because they forgot their uniform. Don't judge me if they didn't turn in their homework because it's still sitting home on their desk. What, are some, uh, what some may view as a lack of parenting is what I deem parenting on purpose as we work to build necessary life skills in our kids. I stopped making daily breakfast and packing school lunches a long time ago. I don't feel obligated to deliver forgotten items left behind at home. School projects and homework are not any part of my existence. So, how do we raise competent adults if we're always doing everything for our kids? Walk away from doing these eight things for your teen this school year. Number one, waking them up in the morning. If you're still waking little Johnny up in the mornings, it's time to let an alarm clock do its job. My foursome have been expected to get themselves up on early on early school mornings since they started middle school, there are days one will come racing out with only a few minutes to spare before they have to be out the door. The snooze button no longer feels luxurious when it causes you to miss breakfast. I heard a mom actually voice out loud that her teen sons were just so, still so cute that she loved going in and waking them up every morning. Please stop. I find my sons just as adorable as you do. 
Uh, but our goal is to raise well-functioning adults here. Number two, making their breakfast and packing their lunch. My morning alarm is, this is her saying, my morning alarm is the sound of kids clanging cereal bowls. My job is to make sure there is food in the house so they can eat breakfast and pack lunch. One friend asked, yeah, but how do you know what they're bringing for school lunch? I don't know. I know what food I have in my pantry, and it's on them to pack, pack up what they feel is a good lunch. It will only be a few short years, and I'll have no idea what they're eating for any of their meals anyway. At college, free yourself from the PB and J station now. Number three, filling out paperwork. I have a lot of kids each which equates to a lot of beginning of the school year paperwork. I used to dread this stack uh, until the kids became of age to fill all of it out themselves. Our teens are expected to fill out all their own paperwork to the best of their ability. They put the papers to be signed on a clipboard and leave it for me on the kitchen island. I sign them and put them back at their desk. Hold your teens accountable. They will need to fill out job and college applications soon, and they will need to know how to do that without your intervention. Number four, delivering their forgotten items. Monday morning, we pulled out of the driveway and screeched around the corner of the house when daughter daughter dear realized she forgot her phone. We've got to go back, Mom. Another exclaimed that he forgot his freshly washed PE uniform folded in the laundry room. I braked in hesitation as I contemplated turning around. Nope. Off we go as the vision surfaced of both of them playing around on their phones before it was time to leave. Parents, don't miss opportunities to provide natural consequences for your teens. Forget something, feel the pain of that. Kids also get to see that you can make it through the day without a mistake consuming you. We also have a rule that mom and dad are not, uh, not to get pleading texts from school asking for forgotten items. It still happens, but we have the right to just shoot back. That's a bummer. Number five, making their failure to plan your emergency. School projects do not get assigned the night before they're due. Therefore, I do not run out and pick up materials at the last minute to get a project finished. I do always keep poster boards and general materials on hand for the procrastinating child, but other needed items you may have to wait for. Do not race to Michael's for your kid who hasn't taken time to plan. This is a good topic to talk about in weekly family meetings. Does anyone have projects coming up that they're going to need supplies for so that I can pick them up at my convenience this week. Number six, doing all of their laundry. What? You didn't get my shorts washed? This response always backfires on the kid uh, who may lose their mind thinking that I'm the only one that can do laundry around here. Every once in a while, A child needs a healthy reminder that I do not work for them. The minute they assume that this is my main role in life is the minute 
I gladly hand over the laundry task to them. Most days I do the washing and the kids fold and put their clothes away, but they are capable of tackling the entire process when need be. There's two more. Number seven, emailing and calling their teachers and coaches. If our child has a problem with a teacher or coach, he's going to have to take it to the one who's in charge. There is no way that we as parents are going to question a coach or email a teacher about something that should have been between the authority figure and our child. Don't uh, be that over-involved over parent. Teach your child that if something is important enough to him that he needs to learn, then he needs to learn how to handle the issue himself or at least ask you to help them. Number eight, meddling in their academics. I hadn't thought about this one, and one I want to think a little bit more about, but I think I certainly agree with a good bit of it. Put the pencil down, parents. Most of the time, I honestly couldn't tell you what my kids are doing for schoolwork. We talk about projects and papers over dinner, but we've always had the expectation of our kids to own their work and grades. At times, they've earned principal's list, honor rolls, and National Junior Honor Society honors on their own accord. At other times, they've missed the mark. These apps and websites where parents can go in and see every detail of children's school grades and homework are not helping our over-parenting epidemic. Every blue moon, I will ask the kids to pull up their student account and show me their grades because I do want to know, and I, know, uh, I do want them to know that I do care. I did notice our daughter slacking off the end of last year, and my, and my acknowledgement helped her catch up, but I'm not taking, on, uh, taking it on as one of my regular responsibilities, and you shouldn't either. What is your parenting goal? It is to raise, is it to raise competent adults? If so, then let's work at, on backing off in areas where our teens can stand on their own two feet. I know they're our babies, and it feels good to hover over them once in a while, but in all seriousness, it's up to us to raise them to be capable people. I want to feel confident when I launch my kids into the real world that they're going to be just fine because I stepped back and let them navigate failure and real-life stuff on their own. So please don't judge me if my kids scramble around shoving prepackaged items into their brown paper lunch bag. It's all on purpose, my friends. So hopefully there's some things to think about and uh, to stir the pot there a little bit for you and me as we uh, think through these issues. Next time we'll go further into depth on teenagers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church to give us a community where we can do this hard thing together. Help us to love one another and to remember to pray for one another in this uh, arduous task of raising kids. Thank you for our children. We love them. We thank you for the ways they delight us and bring us such joy. Uh, so, Father, uh, help us to all remember, whether we're adults or kids or teenagers, that you want us to love each other and to live in communion with each other and to bring glory to your name. So help us to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.